Dan Brown, and I'm here today again with another Lenses on Information Architecture. And today it is my great pleasure to talk to Katrina Alcorn. Katrina, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Dan. I am excited to talk to you because uh, I've followed your career uh, for a little while, and you have uh, gotten to a place of uh, leadership where you're running a fairly large design organization. I'm curious, um, how does your perspective as a designer, someone who's sort of come from the kind of on the ground UX work, how has that influenced your approach to leadership? Yeah, well, I started my career, I actually had a brief but exciting career as a journalist. So I, I started my career in tech as a content strategist. I didn't know what that title meant. And then I learned on the job and, you know, this was back, you, you're of my vintage. So this was back when people would take any warm body at a startup and you'd figure it out as you went because no one knew what they were doing. Um, so I went from content to um, research to teaching myself interaction design. So I've, I've done all those pieces hands-on and the only part I haven't done hands-on is visual design. Um, but I moved pretty quickly into management. And I think that um, my, you know, my background in journalism was actually really helpful there because as a, as a leader, as a manager, you move up more quickly when you really get your communication skills written and verbal kind of in gear. And I, so having that background, I think was very helpful. Um, I don't know if I answered your question. What was the original question? I, uh, I heard career and then... That's pretty good. Usually people ignore me right off the bat, but that was great. Um, <laughs> no, I asked, how does your background uh, in as a designer, or in this case, as a yeah, journalist, yeah. influence your approach to leadership? There sounds like there's a tremendous emphasis on communication and you pay a lot of attention to that. How has that served you well? What do you think sort of, how has that sort of influenced or shaped uh, the teams that you've uh, led? Yeah. Um, it's funny. I was so, so may, maybe it would be helpful if I explain, explain my current role and then we'll kind of work backwards. So, um, you know, I am currently leading the design practice for IBM and we have one of the largest design teams in the world. We have more than 3000 designers all over the globe. So it's huge going from, you know, hands-on design to kind of being a, an executive leading this huge um, team. And when I came on board, my, I came on board at a time when the company had been going through this whole renaissance of design. And so we had a couple hundred designers nine years ago. And then the previous general manager of design, um, Phil Gilbert really led the charge that got us to where we are now with you know, thousands of designers and not only designers, but design executives embedded in every part of the business. So when I came in for the first time, I was coming into something that was pretty baked. I mean, it, there was a lot of maturity in the, in the design practice, which nor in my previous experiences, I was kind of creating something from scratch each time. So this was new. And, um, I started by just doing a lot of listening. You know, any good leader will tell you that's how they start. There were so many people to learn from and so much to absorb. And it was a good six months of listening and learning and, and listening in between 
the sentences for, you know, what's the unmet need, which is what we do as designers, but I was doing it around design, not, not just talking with designers, but also the people who work with designers. Um, and so about six months in, I, you know, working with my team really crafted a vision for where I think we need to go next with our practice. And um, so going back to your question about, you know, communication skills, um, now it's, it's, it's funny, I'm entering the phase of the job where um, there's sort of a, a level of campaigning that you have to do because your audience is so big. Um, my team not only leads all the programs for the design, the design practice, but they also lead the um, enterprise design thinking program, which is proprietary. We developed it at IBM and that's for all 300,000 employees. So there's a lot of people you're kind of trying to, um, you know, bring on, bring on to the same team in terms of like, let's do this together. Here's how we work together. And so I, I've kind of developed a stump speech <laughs> after giving, after giving the vision presentation so many times. And, um, I think it goes back to those communication skills. Um, you know, I, so I said I'd worked in journalism, but I'd also done a, a bit of campaign work and political um, campaigning. And when you do campaigning in PR, you kind of have a set of talking points and you say them a thousand different ways over and over and over again, or maybe not even differently. You say them the same way over and over. And anyone who's following you from speech to speech may get really bored with that and you may get bored with yourself. But when you've got such a big audience, you kind of have to do that because it, it takes many times to kind of get everyone on the same page. But we're now just to kind of wrap up this, this comment, we're now getting to a place where I've been at IBM for a little under a year. And I'm now hearing other people all over the company repeating the talking points. So I, I know that like something's happening because at the end of the day, this should not be about me and my vision, it should be about us and what we're trying to do together. And it's more and more starting to feel like us. Right. One of the great ironies of leadership, I think, is that in order to be a good leader, you have to relinquish a certain amount of control. Mm -hmm. How do you uh, coach the folks who work with you on helping them to relinquish control? What, what, mm -hmm. is, what are some of the techniques or approaches that you've used to sort of let some things go because you know, as a leader, they are to some extent out of your hands? Yeah. Well, one thing I talk a lot about with um, our teams is our tendency toward perfection. And I, I speak from experience. So to be really effective, we have to let go of that need for everything to be perfect. And that connects to this idea of letting go of control. Because when you, part, of, part of that is, you know, you, you have to be able to delegate and you have to trust your team and you have to know that, you know, you're giving good guidance, but then they may have different ways of doing things than how you would do it. And that needs to be okay. Um, I was, I recently gave a talk of, um, at IBM about, uh, my, so my husband is also has the same background as me, Brian Alcorn, who's a journalist and then a designer and his perfection tendencies are even worse than mine. And, uh, he'll, you know, write a draft. He's actually working on a book right now and he'll rewrite the same chapter 12 times. And 
So he created this word perfecticide, which is a little disturbing, but you get the idea. It's, it's death by perfection. And so I think the way you get past that is you, you learn to give up some control. You learn to humble yourself and be okay with things not being perfect. So I'm uh, an information architect for better, for worse. And I'm especially interested in how a practice uh, like IA um, uh, is manifest today in all kinds of design teams. What, what role would you say does IA play in, uh, in your space at the moment? What role have uh, you been able to get your teams to uh, uh, adopt information architecture into? Yeah. I, I love that you still use that title, Dan, because I don't hear it very often anymore. And um, I've been wondering why, and I've actually been talking to um, Adam Cutler on my team. He and I both have this pet peeve about, you know, kids these days, they don't understand information architecture. So we, we've noticed this trend, and I, I don't know if you're seeing it, um, but there's this trend with this new generation of designers kind of coming into the workforce now, do some really cool stuff and um, often have these kind of mix of, of technical and visual skills that I certainly didn't have that is envious. At the same time, we're noticing this lack of information architecture skills, the lack of being able to get your arms around the big picture and um, you know, and, and the way this manifests, so for example, I, um, I've been in design reviews where the designers will show some really beautiful, um, wireframes and there, and there's a lot of good decisions that go into that moment in time. Here's what this screen is going to do. But when I ask, well, how does it hang together? No one can answer the question to me, information architecture is one of the key ways that we answer that question, how does it hang together? So I, I feel like, um, you know, everything old is new again. I think IA maybe do for a, a sort of resurgence a bit because when you, when you don't have those skills, things can get messy and chaotic and, um, and the, the big picture gets lost. So uh, this, uh, I, I agree. I mean, I think I've seen that uh, as well. Um, and I've, it seems a lot more, the awareness and understanding of IA is a lot more uneven too. You've got, I've got some designers who show up and they are, have an awareness of what it is, um, but don't, never learned how to go about doing it um, mm -hmm. or that there was a, a way to go about doing it. I've also coached some teams who will bring me on to provide some consulting or whatever. And to me, the IA problems are blatant. They've got menus that are super long with all kinds of things mixed in together and they don't see what the problem with that is or they don't understand that mm -hmm. that's a good starting point. So how do you, uh, have you been able to encourage, I don't know how to say this other than encourage adoption of IA skills? Okay. Have you been able to help and coach your teams to build those IA skills? Yeah, yeah, I um, I have. There's been a, a couple situations where I've been in a product review. I see some really cool work. I ask, how does it hang together? Or where, you know, can I see a site map? I don't understand how the pieces come together and no one can answer that question. 
And so we go back to basics. I mean, I, part of encouraging is just asking the questions. And I think, you know, when you ask the question, people realize, oh, that that's a missing piece. We need to think more broadly about how this comes together. Um, I don't know about you because I haven't been doing hands-on IA in a really long time, but I am old school on a good old fashioned card sort on the floor with a bunch of index cards can, you know, it doesn't solve every problem, but sometimes that's what's needed. And so I encourage my teams to kind of go back and do that. And for some of them, it's the first time they've ever done that. And these are designers who are pretty seasoned. So just to change gears, the whole sort of impetus of this, these conversations is for us to take a new lens to the practice of design, the practice of user experience. So zooming out, uh, what what do you think needs re-examining? What sort of preconceptions or assumptions or conventional wisdom has long existed in the field of say UX or design that uh, need to be more closely examined? Yeah, what needs to be re-examined? Well, um, I think that um, something I'm thinking of, about a lot now that I'm at IBM, you know, one of thousands of designers, like who knew you could hire that many people, right? That's a lot of designers. And yet we are a very big company. And what I'm realizing is we will never have enough designers. We'll never have enough because design is so much in demand. You know, look around you, we're designers. So we see every badly designed experience, you know, whether it's tangible or intangible, the world is badly designed. It needs designers, but they're never enough. And so I think one thing we need to really start thinking about is how do we, how do we have, how do we infuse the practice of design into how everyone works? And some people will get mad when I say this. So I want to be clear. I think there's always going to be, there's always going to be a need for a special, you know, design skill set. Same with user research, same with content. That said, I think some of the things that designers own in a traditional, you know, product team could be shared. And I think it would also help us be more successful because at the end of the day, if our biggest contribution is that we are advocating for the needs of the real humans who will interact with the things we create, we need everyone to care about that, no matter what role they're in. Uh, that's great. Um, how, uh, at what point in your career did you sense that there was a need to closely re-examine this at what point in your career did you did you get the feeling that maybe design was holding its cards too close to its chest right mm -hmm. and not kind of sharing or drawing other folks into the process to advocate for real humans yeah uh oh so many points in my career this was part of my maturing as not only a designer but an adult <laughs> um my the first 10 plus years of my design career, I spent as a consultant. And I've noticed, you know, this, this isn't everyone, but I've noticed this tendency, this kind of us and them tribal thing that happens maybe even more so than in, consul in, in consulting than on product design teams or other design teams. 
there's something about the nature and you, you do consulting. So I'm curious to know what you think about this, but I've thought a lot about it. And I think there's something about the being a subcontractor or a contractor, knowing that you're the first person to take the blame or the first person who can be let go. If a problem arises, it, you know, does it creates, um, fear on both sides and that it creates this sort of animosity that it, um, I've just seen it play out too many times to think it's, it's random. I think there's something about that, the nature of that relationship. Now that's not all on design, but some of that gets exacerbated by design teams when they, you know, I think sometimes the response from design teams is to hold your cards close to your chest and say, well, I'm the expert, you, you know, no one else knows only I know. And the problem with that mindset and that behavior is it alienates the people we're trying to work with. Um, so I, I've seen that too many times <laughs> and I, and I've participated in it. I, you know, I say this with humility. I mean, I, I think, like I said, that was part of kind of maturing my own understanding of how things really get done is this is, this has got to be us, not us and them. Is that, is that true of um, some of the younger designers that are sort of coming up uh, these days as well? Is there, do you still perceive that us and them you mentality? Know, I, I don't know because I mean, I, okay. Yes, I do see that. I get, I, I definitely hear that from different corners that said, maybe I'm a little spoiled in my current role at IBM. I think that IBM is unique in having a very open, extremely open collaborative culture around design. I don't see the same level of um, competitiveness either among designers or between designers and other disciplines that I've seen at other companies. So is it because this generation is better or is it because IBM has a special culture? I don't know. I, right. I, my guess is IBM has a special culture. I mean, the, the journey that IBM has been on for the last decade is just so unique. And um, so many people kind of were along together for that journey. So even when they spread out to other parts of the company, there's a sense of camaraderie, like we're right. really doing this together. Right. How do you, uh, for those of us who are sort of ascending and moving along in our career, uh, maybe we've all come to recognize the value of a, a more collaborative, inclusive approach uh, to design, but we're still mentoring folks who might feel proprietary about how they, uh, how they do design. They might feel territorial uh, about it. So how would you help emerging leaders, uh, how would you coach them in coaching their own folks? What do you say to people to help them uh, encourage other people to be more um, collaborative in terms of their design process? Yeah, um, I, there are two things that come to mind. The first one is I would focus on, first of all, like, you know, if it's appropriate, acknowledging where the feelings underneath that because that's a very fear-based interact, um, sort of, I, I think, uh, what am I trying to say? It's like a manifestation of some kind of fear, right? So this territorialness, it's someone feels unsafe about something and they're locking down. And so I think there are ways as leaders, we can acknowledge that, that can kind of take some of the air out of that and, and calm it. But then the other part is I'd focus on outcomes. Um, you know, at the end of the day, being territorial most of the time backfires. 
So if we can get outside of the emotions and say, what is it we're actually trying to achieve? And by the way, yes, maybe this person did not treat you well and you totally have a right to your feelings, but what is it that you're trying to get done? And is this behavior going to help us get there? Or is there, what other options do we have? That, that would be my advice. Yeah, that's great. So um, I've been doing this as well, sort of taking a lens to the practice of IA and mm-hmm. trying to, trying to clear out some of the old cobwebs, right? Comes clear out some of the old uh, boxes that I haven't looked in in a while, so to speak. Um, There are a lot of preconceptions that I have about information architecture. There are a lot of preconceptions that I have about the practice of user experience. So Mm. I've been ending these conversations, raising one of these and asking you to help me to do some emotional labor uh, for me. Um, (laughs) And, uh, maybe think through some of these preconceptions. So the the one the one that's been uh, bothering me a lot, mm-hmm. and that I've saved for a special occasion, is uh, I'm and it, it actually fits very nicely with what we were just talking about. <clears throat> I have this preconception that not everyone can do information architecture, mm. and I don't think that's very fair on my part. Mm. I wonder if you might help me sort of deconstruct this uh, yeah. a little bit. Do you think that's, do you, do you have a sense of uh, that this might be true or does this something that I need to throw away and start again? Yeah, I think it's a, a yes and no. It's an unsatisfactory answer. So you could, you, you could fill in the blank. It could be information architecture. It could be writing. It could be, um, user research, it could be design. I mean, we you can fill in that sentence, not everyone can with any of our subspecialties. And it's true and it's not true. At the it so the where it's where it's not true is I think there are aspects of information architecture and these other subdisciplines that um you know there's most people can do some level of that where it gets, but we sort of pass a bar at some point and it becomes, you know, this is a job for the experts. (laughs) And going back to what I was saying before about um, needing to realize that we'll never have enough designers, so we've got to democratize design, that's part of it. I think, you know, we'll we'll always need specialists like yourself for the really hard jobs. And then maybe we can help our product managers and our developers and others with some of the basics that that they don't need us for. What do you think? How how does that sit, Dan? (laughs) um, My takeaway is um, maybe not everyone can do information architecture, but we need everyone in order to do information architecture. Yeah. So I can't... um, um, I can't train everyone to do IA exactly the same way that I can do, but I can bring people along for the ride and I can create frameworks that allow them to participate in the IA process so that I'm not working from a very strict perspective. Mm -hmm. And if I were to sort of characterize this stage of my career, I think that's a pretty good summary of where I feel like I am and why I'm going through this process of how do I 
bring others along for the ride? How do I make it? How do I create space to allow everyone to participate fully or to the extent that they want to in the design or the IA process? I, I love that. One, one way that I've seen the teams do this at IBM, and I get no credit for this because it happened before I came, is with our EDT, our Enterprise Design Thinking um, trainings that we do. And by the way, some of these are available to the public. So if you Google IBM Enterprise Design Thinking, you'll I think you'll find three badges that you can just go through the digital process and get badged. Um, but the idea with these badges is, you know, design can't be successful on our own. We're only 3,000 people, but we work with 300,000 people. So how do we enable our partners to play their role so that we can be successful in creating, you know, thing, things that people love? And so there's roles for, uh, we actually have a new training we're creating right now for executives, which is all about what's your role as an executive, not a design executive, but all the other executives in um, creating the conditions for success. We have a, a badge for coaches. So there, there's different roles people play and they don't all have to get played by designers. That's great. I think we will leave it there. Katrina, that was fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. I really Thank appreciate you. it. Thank you. So fun to see you, Dan. Thank nice you. To see you.